rarely are cast depressed people invested in to iterate around a problem. White people are always given the space. Savarnas are always given the space to like iterate, move fast, break things. In many ways, like you don't solve complex structural problems and systems without many rounds at the go of it. But it's very scary for Dalits to do those kinds of pivots because we're already held to a higher standard. People assume that we're not as competent. Hi, I'm Tanaya, and you're listening to Failure Files, a podcast by India Development Review, where social change leaders share their stories of failure and the lessons they learned in the process. This season, in a special series we're doing in partnership with the Wellbeing Project, we will be bringing you stories about the intersection of failure and well-being. We will hear from social entrepreneurs, a Dalit rights activist and Olympic gold medalist and others about their perspectives on failure as well as what the road to recovery and resilience looks like. Most conversations around self-care focus on what individuals can do to cope with stress and improve their well-being. But this narrative puts the onus on the individual entirely and ignores the role of a person's social, political and economic context. For instance, research shows that in India, socio-economically disadvantaged communities such as Muslims and scheduled castes have significantly worse mental health outcomes when compared to upper caste Hindus. So then, what does self-care mean for those who are fighting systems of oppression and discrimination day in and day out? How do they prioritize their own well-being? Joining me today to talk about all of this and much more is transmedia artist and activist Thenmori Sundararajan. Thenmori is the founder and executive director of Equality Labs, a Dalit civil rights organization dedicated to ending caste apartheid, gender-based violence, Islamophobia, white supremacy, and religious intolerance. Her work has been crucial in getting a number of institutions and universities in America to reevaluate their discrimination policies and include caste as a protected category. Tenmori is also the force behind Dalit Women Fight, a community-led digital project to amplify the voices of Dalit women fighting for justice, and the co-founder of Dalit History Month. In her upcoming book, The Trauma of Caste, Thanmori explores the trauma of Brahminical social structures for caste-oppressed communities and what healing and well-being can look like. And on today's episode, she's talking about failure as an opportunity to build power, how systems of oppression affect well-being, and what healing looks like for individuals and communities. Thanmori, you've been at the forefront of movements for caste equity and racial justice, both in India and the U.S., could you tell us a little bit more about what this journey has looked like so far? I've been an activist for many years. You know, my family was always active related to work around caste abolition. And I think that, you know, when I came into my own in college, I was really shaped by both the battles for racial justice and also my own experience of caste discrimination. And so as well as the issues kind of facing myself being a survivor of gender-based violence. So I think that 
in my time in college, it was really crucial for me to see how all of those threads are um, really form the need for an intersectional approach to caste equity. And a really important case that happened when I was in school was um, the Lucky Bali Ready case in California, where a dominant caste landlord trafficked over 300 caste-depressed workers, including 20 young girls, some as young as 11 and 13, to be his sex slaves and to work his buildings in the city. And he's the second largest landlord there. And so many of his buildings were student housing. And so it was so bizarre to me as a you know, as a young Dalit woman to know that you could see Dalit children that were working his buildings instead of being in school. And nobody asked a question because Dalit women and girls are invisible to almost every society that they're in. So that really shaped my perspective as an activist and the need for there to be interventions and also to go beyond the triage um, experience of structural discrimination and look consistently at the systems that are failing and the ways that we can come up with systemic interventions. Thanks, Tenmori. You mentioned how your parents were also actively working towards caste abolition and how you also started on this journey a while ago. And this just goes to show that when we're working on issues of social change, we need to be ready for a long, arduous journey and not quick turnarounds. Because social change is a slow, gradual process that may take years, even more so when one is trying to dismantle a system of oppression that is centuries old. So what does it take, both mentally and emotionally, to keep going against all odds and to bring others along too? I think one thing that's very important is to recognize that you are part of a chain, a lineage of resilience. So it's never about you as a singular point in time. There are ancestors that have fed you to get to this moment. And there are those that will follow you for whom you are an ancestor in training. And when you recognize that you're not the single hand that's carrying the responsibility for freedom, it's um, it basically takes the burden off of you from imagining that you have to win it all right at this moment. And that's why I always say that we are fighting to end cast apartheid in our lifetime. And we live our lives as if we see that goal post. So that means setting targets that are strategic and visionary. That means pushing ourselves to look and examine and unearth all the places that caste exists in our bodies and our policies and our institutions and our relationships, but also that we need to fundamentally understand that you might sometimes win a battle or lose a battle, but we are really in the process of building leaders who can be autonomous and dream and um, fight and strategize on themselves in ways that are separate from the how Brahmanism trains us to be. Brahmanism tells us that we have to give over our self-determination, the ways we process knowledge. And so to really create leaders that have de-Brahmanized themselves, that in and of itself is, is a political project. So I always look at every campaign as part of the larger arc of the freedom of our people. And every time you fight, you actually build power. You may not win that particular target, but you build power for the next um, challenge. Could you tell us a little bit more about what that's been like? While your work has been instrumental in bringing about significant change in a relatively short amount of time, I'm sure it's not easy. 
I'm sure you've had to also navigate a lot of backlash, setbacks and failures in your journey as well. So it's okay, I think, to have setbacks because again, we are building leaders who will then come back stronger, smarter and refined. And I think that long-term vision has actually been really useful because we are one organization that continuously delivers strategic wins. I won't say that we win every engagement that we go into, but we have moved the ball very far in terms of cast equity in the diasporic space. Because I can certainly remember when we first started, people did not believe that caste existed at all. And it was very contentious in the battle around California textbooks where you had dominant caste forces trying to erase Dalit, not you know teach the issue of caste and argue that Hinduism didn't have patriarchy in it, all of this stuff. And I remember talking to one of the board of ed people and what their response was is that your stories are really compelling, but you don't have any data. And so that taught me that as a marginalized community, the way we tell our stories matter to people in power. And those people of power don't look at our bodies, don't look at our spirits, don't look at our stories. They only look at quantitative data to make their policy calls. That's one of the reasons why we started out to do the CAST survey. And the CAST survey was very challenging because, again, even to conduct the survey, we faced discrimination. People hurled castlers at us. They targeted us. They told us we were dividing the community. How could we? We were terrible people. There was even a board, an organization that had to convene its board because they went into existential crisis. And they said, if we deliver this survey, we will split our institution. And we had to go and present to the board that you're not going to do that. Routinely, CAS gets surveyed in our homelands, but actually your community is already split because look, there's CAS suppressed members of your, your organization. They're asking for help. So based on all of that, we were able to make the right intervention. And I think that data set really kind of changed the entire discourse because for the first time we had definitive proof CAS existed in North America. You know, it went all the way. We've had congressional briefings. We've seen institutions add cast as a protected category. That data provided the platform for many of the litigation that's coming forward now because there's proof that cast exists. And it empowers Dalits to be able to speak about their experiences of widespread discrimination across the country. And so what I saw in that, going back to your question, is that there is so much opportunity for transformation and growth when you can take a defeat or take a challenge and a setback and then problem solve. Well, what's the structural intervention we can make from that? So I think failure can be really informative in terms of the pivots that you need to make. And also that rarely are cast depressed people invested in to iterate around a problem. White people are always given the space. Savarnas are always given the space to like iterate, move fast, break things. In many ways, like you don't solve complex structural problems and systems without many rounds at the go of it. But it's very scary for Dalits to do those kinds of pivots because we're already held to a higher standard. People assume that we're not as competent. And so oftentimes, if a project that we're working on doesn't go in the right direction, then we're immediately shut down. And that's not how we have to operate. It's like we really have to think in a very structural way. What are our opportunities in every point that we grow? You know, so I, I would say that what I have seen is that by keeping the eye on 
investing in leaders, making sure that leaders have an arc of development and experimentation so that they can keep learning with the right support in terms of Dalit feminist practices and ways. You see um, huge opportunities for people to then keep taking that work into their um, different domains and spheres. You make a very important point about focusing on strategic wins and using setbacks and failures as opportunities to problem solve and build a stronger movement. But at the same time, caste marginalized communities aren't given this space to fail. In this context, what does failure mean for well-being both at an individual and collective level? Especially when we take into account the structural violence that caste oppressed communities already face on a daily basis. I don't think that our community centers wellness. You know, this is a big part of why I talk about one of the processes of caste must really also include the healing from the trauma of caste. And in fact, I've just written a book about this because we understand caste as a political project. We understand it as an economic project, but we rarely examine the effects of long-term caste stress in the internal, interpersonal, and institutional realms on Dalit bodies and caste privileged bodies. And I would say that Dalits have some of the worst health outcomes ever. The average age of mortality for Dalit women is 39 years. We're denied health care and access, and we're not even given space to acknowledge that we have significant pain and stress from the impacts of structural caste um, itself. You have to have that foundational conversation first before you can talk about, well, what's the well-being in the context of facing constant pushbacks to your bite to dignity? Well, it sucks. And many Dalit activists suffer from systemic conditions as a result, like anxiety, panic attacks, depression, institutional murder, and suicide. These things aren't just because Dalits are um, having worse like mental health outcomes just out of the blue. It's because systems of oppression kill. You can't fight for social justice and assume that an individual is responsible for their own well-being when there's a failure of structural systems at every level. That's probably like the first mistake because you can't, how are you supposed to take care of yourself when you don't have health insurance? How are you supposed to take care of yourself in a country where people had to pay for access to the vaccine? And we have some of the highest child malnutrition rates. It's cruel to say that that is an individual's responsibility when it actually is reflective of institutional failure. But I think that's why we have to fight for just wages. That's why we have to fight for proper health care benefits. We also have to be able to have better boundaries because we are people who are fighting numerous fires, but we have to be able to create time for our minds and our bodies and spirits. And it requires a different way of movement building. And it can sound very, very hard to do when you are an organizer that's a frontline organizer dealing with the worst of everything. But the natural resource that we actually cannot replenish is ourselves, our life spirit, our bodies. And so when our bodies fail, when our lives fails, there is no more work. So we have to defend our bodies' um, needs and our spiritual needs because the commitment to heal and looking at caste abolition as both a healing project 
is about what does the world look like if Dalits were allowed to be human? Not like where we're stretched to the thin and trying to fight for survival over that last scrap or defending ourselves from massive atrocity. What does it really look like if we were to have healing and joy and pleasure and ease? And that could feel as far away as a science fiction project of trying to colonize Mars, but that's the ambition we need to have. And sometimes it's just even having, starting with like two hours of no screen time, two hours of doing some collective care, like maybe oiling your hair or reading a book, things that give you time to kind of nourish your soul as well as your body and your heart. And when you're in a state of constant emergency and violence and crisis and your nervous system is consistently desettled, you may have lost the path or the thread for how to return back to that. And I think that the best way to do that is to go back and begin again and start slowly keeping a journal that kind of documents your reconnection to those things that nourish you and bring you pleasure. The natural state of our body is to be alive and joy, you know, and it's oppression that kind of really takes us off. I'm taking back so much from our conversation today, Than Mori. What you've articulated so well is that individuals alone cannot create social change. There is more power, more strength and more care when people come together in solidarity. That truly is such a powerful message. You've also highlighted how, in this process of sustaining social movements, it is important to keep our long-term vision and goal in mind. And accept that every time we fight, we may not win. What one can do instead is use each failure as an opportunity to build power for the next challenge that comes their way. Lastly, and perhaps most importantly, you've reminded us that we don't need to lose ourselves in the pursuit of a cause. Taking time out to care for yourself does more for a movement in the long run than burning out. Failure Files is produced by Rachita Vohra, Shreya Adhikari, and me, Tanaya Jaktiani. Mixed and mastered by Tejasvi Rao. This podcast is part of a larger initiative at IDR, where alongside 15 partners, we are creating space for candid conversations around failures and social impact. This episode is part of a special series in partnership with The Wellbeing Project, where we look at the intersection of failure and well-being. To read more about Failure Files, check us out at idronline.org. Thank you for listening and see you next week.